really excited to share with you this interview with Annette Johnson. If you've been a part of the Florida Conference at the United Methodist Church, you might know her for her passion for children's ministry. She's worked with YMI as someone who's passionate about creating strong children's and family ministries in local churches. And I think that she's been working in all of the children's ministries in some capacity in every church where her husband has been appointed as the pastor. And she's just a wonderful woman of faith. However, when I first asked her to let me interview her for an Advent series, she was really skeptical and wasn't sure if she'd have anything to say. But when I told her what I wanted to talk about was birth stories, her tune completely changed and she said she was so there. Annette has a lot that she could share in the birthing of her five children or her keepers, but she also has the unique experience of caring for another family as a surrogate. She discusses this experience in contrast to uh, her other experiences of birth and what she learned in the waiting. So here's our interview. Enjoy! It's good to see you. Um, everyone else doesn't get to enjoy how nice you look today on our Zoom Zoom call. Yes, it's great to be here. I put on some earrings and a little bit of makeup because I didn't know who would be seeing me today. And so unlike my normal COVID appear, I, apparel, I tried to uh, jazz it up just a little bit here today. <laughs> well, it's really good to get to talk to you. And I've really enjoyed hearing... Um, all of these different birth stories and just the ways that we see all of these lessons for us in birth. Um, but you're the only person I know who's had your birth story experience um, around being a surrogate. And, and so you have not just, I mean, you also have five of your own children. So you have all of those birth stories and those things. So I just, I feel like you have this beautiful, like well to draw from around how um, creating life has just been a big part of something that I've heard you talk about and like loving it, like the experience, not many people love the experience of being pregnant. And it sounds like, no, they don't. <laughs> that was, that was the cakewalk for you on the spectrum of parenting. It was, I, you know, when I didn't even remember how long I had talked about being a surrogate until a girlfriend of mine, um, her name's Katie, when I told her that we were finally making the leap and I was, we were going into surrogacy, she said, oh my gosh, Annette, I have this vivid memory of being at your house and you were pregnant uh, with Juliana, who's my second, she's almost 15. Um, and Seamus, my oldest, who's almost 17, was like toddling around. They're only, uh, they're less than two years apart. And she said, and you were talking about wanting to be a surrogate and caring for someone else. And she said, I was looking at you like you are a crazy woman, because how could you be talking about having a baby for someone else when you were currently pregnant with a baby? Because she did not love being pregnant. And I just, birth transformed me. Um, delivering my first child was like just the most transformative experience of my life. It was... Um, the whole process. I, I don't know, uh, just 
it, it was a major landmark in my life that it is for most women, but it, it just really, I felt like I came into my own, um, as a person, as a woman and understood myself better. Um, and I did, I had beautiful pregnancies. I mean, little normal things, uh, little hiccups here and there, but, um, really I, I wasn't overly sick. I wasn't, I didn't have gestational diabetes. I didn't have, I had mild high blood pressure here and there, but again, all within kind of the realm of normal, I was cared for by midwives with all five of mine and, um, was able to deliver out of the hospital, um, in birth centers with all five. And so it's just something I kind of always knew, um, that I wanted to do. So were your births unmedicated? They were. All five of mine were unmedicated. So I delivered in out-of-hospital birth centers. We contemplated home birth. I always wanted a home birth, mm -hmm. um, but just with various issues around the time that each of each delivered, uh, home wasn't the right space just because um, at one point it was like we were in a temporary apartment right around the time that I was due and we were just moving and we weren't sure where we were going to be. Were we still going to be in this place or were we going to be in the new place when the baby came? And, um, and at another point we were, uh, living in my husband's parents' house where they were no longer living. They had moved away and we had agreed to move into their house in order to, um, help get it ready to sell. And so there was just like, it was kind of just things like that every time, but I was, we were very lucky, um, that we've delivered with three different midwives, um, and in two different parts of the country in Florida and in Texas, um, we lived very close by home, like birth centers. So they weren't like mm -hmm. attached to a hospital. They were little houses, um, one of them was literally a house on a normal street other than the mm -hmm. little sign hanging out front. You wouldn't have known it wasn't a house. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was, it was like delivering at home, but just not my home, uh, where I didn't have to worry about it being ready, um, right. for birth. And, uh, with all of them, we were home within, I think the longest we stayed in the birth center after any of them was about six hours. So we were home within a handful of hours after birth, um, with all of them. So that was kind of my own personal, um, pregnancy and birth experience. Yeah. I feel like there's this, um, there's this whole secret, like connective club with other unmedicated mom, like birthing moms. <laughs> um, because my sister's currently pregnant and I had an unmedicated birth and we've been talking and I'm like, I don't want to sway you, but like, I just want you to consider it. I think so many people don't consider it and there's lots of great reasons to yeah. um, give, you know, birth in a hospital or to use medication, but there's also um, some ways I think that it's become so normalized. People don't explore all of their options. Absolutely. And I was young when um, we had our first child. I was only 23. And, um, but when I was about 17 or 18, um, my, well, when I was 18, my older brother and his wife at the time had my first niece, my uh, first niece or nephew. Um, so kind of the first baby born in the family, the first grandchild. And, um, my brother was in college, he was taking college classes at the time and he had written this paper 
about after his wife delivered. He had written this paper about um, epidurals and medicalized birth and, and home birth. And um, it, it was just a, I don't even know what course it was for. This was 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Um, but I was at his house visiting after uh, my niece Julia had been born. And I don't know how I ended up reading this paper, but I did. And I, it just kind of sparked something inside of me as a teenager that this, this is something that's the way I want to do it. And then, um, and then I, I looked into becoming a doula at one point. And when we started talking about having our first, because while we were very young, we were married and he was very much planned. We knew we wanted to start our family young. That had kind of just been something we knew we wanted to do. So the first thing I did when we started talking about conceiving was look to see if there was a midwife in Lakeland where we lived at the time. And um, the midwife who delivered my oldest two is still practicing in Lakeland. Um, she only does home births now, but she had a birth center at the time. And um, and yeah, so I, I I think you're right. I think it's something not not everybody knows is even really a viable option um, that exists out there. And I don't think it makes me any better. And I don't think it it's, it's any kind of competition. I hear that a lot. It's not a competition, and I don't think it's a competition. But I do think that if if it's something of interest to you, it can it can make your birth experience um, just different. It's just different. Because I did with my surrogate pregnancy, which was my sixth delivery, was the complete antithesis to those other pregnancies. As the surrogate community refers to them as your keepers. Mm -hmm. So my five keepers, <laughs> my biological children, um, you know, that was my experience. And with my surrogate pregnancy, it was completely the opposite. Um, I was under an OB's care and I ended up needing to be induced and then the induction turned into a cesarean and then I was in the hospital for um, an extended a bit of an extended period after because of some complications and um, so I've kind of seen both ends of this of yeah. it um, now. Yeah I um, I definitely agree with you it is not competition I also feel like I just, there are plenty of um, birth stories that are really tough. I know at the end of mine, both of mine, I feel like I came out feeling like I am woman, hear me roar kind of thing. Yeah. So that's like what I hope for everyone, that you feel this kind of connection to your body and creation and all of those things. But you mentioned how different um, your surrogacy pregnancy was. And I, I know um, you had a small group of people kind of praying for you and that you were sharing some of those details of things to pray for. Um, what were some of like the big differences just around carrying and those experiences? Well, I mean, first of all, just the whole experience is very different because it's an IVF pregnancy. And so, um, and we also had two transfers prior to the one that uh, ended up becoming a full-term baby. Um, so the first one was a miscarriage um, that was, I was about four, 13 weeks along with the baby had actually stopped growing at eight weeks, but it was what they call a missed miscarriage where your body doesn't recognize it. Um, so 
my body wasn't doing what it should have done. Um, and so we had no idea that it was happening um, until we had an ultrasound and it was discovered. Um, and so while the baby had stopped growing at eight weeks, for all intensive purposes, it was like being 14-ish weeks pregnant as far as like the emotional aspect. And um, I had even thought at that point I was starting to feel movement. And I remember feeling really guilty because I had told the parents, oh my gosh, I think I'm feeling the baby move. Um, but I wasn't because the baby was was not alive at the time. So it was just some other function of my body that I was misinterpreting the signs of. Um, and then the second transfer, um, the the embryo implanted but never developed so it never got as far as a heartbeat it like starts so what happens is it like starts developing but it never it it gets what it's called a heart a fetal heart pole um but which is where the heart would grow but it never actually grows so it just kind of um just stops really early so it stops at like you know what would be like five weeks or four weeks um in a normal pregnancy and then finally, the third, um, everything went well as far as developing and, um, you know, all those first early in, in an IVF pregnancy, you do a lot of ultrasounds at the beginning um, to make sure that things are, are happening correctly. Uh, and then around 13 weeks, you get released to your regular doctor. So you're with a reproductive endocrinologist is what they're called. And then um, once you hit about your second trimester, they release you to whoever's going to be your care practitioner at that point. And so um, I knew from the beginning I would be seeing an OBGYN with this. While there are surrogate pregnancies that do see midwives, it is much less common. Um, And and it's understandable. It's uh, for the parents of the baby. Um, I, I often try to just put myself in their shoes and how little control they have to be trusting another person to carry their child. And so they, and their the whole process has been very medical for them from the creation of the embryo. And, and for many parents, the reasons that have brought them to surrogacy have involved a lot of loss and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, every precaution they you know it's just they want everything to be as um, protected as possible so i knew um and i you know it was part of our agreed upon terms that i was going to be seeing an OBGYN. so i went to the OBGYN, and at my very first appointment so i was like 12 weeks my blood pressure was like 210 over 140 or something like crazy high I got sent straight to the emergency room. I felt fine. That was what was even weirder. I didn't have a headache. I didn't feel weird or anything. Um, But so that kind of started it. That's like, that was where everything just kind of started. And so because of that, I had to see two doctors. I had to be both under the care of my OBGYN and a maternal fetal medicine and MFM specialist who specializes in high-risk pregnancies. So, and... I was 39. So I was old. That's old for pregnant. Um, <laughs> it's uh, elderly or geriatric. It's so unfair calling Geri- geriatric, pregnancy. geriatric pregnancies. So I was old. It was an IVF pregnancy and then the blood pressure. So I was really became like considered very high risk at that point. So we, we also knew at the, from the beginning 
that if she hadn't come by 39 weeks, I was going to be induced at 39 weeks. That was decided. I think I was only 14 weeks when that was decided, um, which was a new, I've never been induced before. And I, I knew I wasn't going to have the baby before 39 weeks. I just knew in my gut, I know all of mine went 40 weeks or farther. And I just, I just knew. And then as the pregnancy progressed, it was pretty quickly discovered that she was growing a lot faster and bigger, which was a good thing because the risk of high blood pressure in pregnancy is actually the opposite, is that the baby will, will not grow, will be very small um, because the, the placenta doesn't get the blood flow that it needs because your body's protecting your own body with your high blood pressure. But I was on blood pressure medication. It was well controlled the whole pregnancy. So she was growing and growing it in every, every four weeks and then every two weeks and then every one week I was having ultrasounds and it was just like, okay, the baby's really big. And I said, well, I've had, I personally have two that were 10 pounds. No big deal. Like it'll be fine. Um, and I did, I kept thinking that and when we went to the hospital for the induction, the nurse was like, I'm going to just go ahead and get the birth stuff like set right now because this is your sixth delivery and your deliveries were fast. So I think we're going to like turn on the potatoes and you're going to like deliver in five minutes. So that's kind of what we were prepared for, but that is not but what that's happened. Also like the worst expectation. I know, right? You. <laughs> I know. So 36 hours uh, that I was induced for. Uh, and she was just not coming. She's, and I was fine and she was fine. Neither of us were ever any, in any distress, which was really good. Um, but it finally came to the point where we just determined because of her size or some of the reason she was, she was not coming. Um, I was having good contractions as far as what you would expect to see someone in active labor that was progressing, but that I was not. And so we made the hard decision um, to have a C-section and um, had a C-section that night. So I had been there for a, about, a, I had gotten there really early in the morning on Monday and then Tuesday night um, we did the C-section and she was 11 pounds. So she was, she was a hardy young thing. And the doctor said he really thinks she would not have ever come she would not have ever delivered because he said even he even had a hard time pulling her shoulders out via cesarean um which had been his concern the whole time something called shoulder dystocia which is where their shoulders get stuck and they can break their collarbone and have a lot of complications so we were we were happy that we made the decision when we did because we were able to make the decision when it wasn't an emergency um so that we had time to come to terms with it and um, have a spinal because I, I didn't have any medication at that point. Um, so I didn't have to be knocked out. Whereas because I didn't have an epidural, if it had been an emergency, they would have just had to knock me out because they wouldn't have had time to run the epidural. So we were glad we made the decision when we made the decision. Um, but it was it was just so different. And I knew it was going to be different because it wasn't my baby. And so I had, but I still had thoughts, you know, going into birth, you always, especially if you've, if you've delivered before, you go in with some ideas of what it's going to be like. And so I had this picture in my mind of the baby being born and 
and initially being kind of plopped because of the umbilical cord, but mom being right there kind of next to me, almost holding baby on me until they could cut the umbilical cord. And then, and then seeing her hold the baby for the first time, um, you know, these are the images I had in my head and yeah. none of those things happened because by the end of the C-section, they had kind of had to knock me out because the spinal was not working well. So I was kind of semi-conscious. So they didn't even like show the baby like you see in movies or if you've had a C-section, anyone, they hold it up over the blue drape. That didn't happen. They just kind of whisked her away. And mom and dad were in another room. So they immediately, once they got her stable and wrapped up, they carried her to the room right next door to mom and dad. So I didn't see them, see her. And I didn't, you know, and, and while that's not mine to have, that, that is their experience to hold their baby. And, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I, I don't expect to be the first one to hold the baby for any reason, but I, I still just had this expectation of seeing them see her. Does that make sense? And I didn't get any of that. And it was a, and then there was COVID, which made it also more complicated as far as who could be where, when. Um, dad was not even supposed to be there. I won't say the name of the hospital I delivered at so nobody gets in trouble, but they kind of snuck him in um, to the recovery room. And so he was able to be there for about two hours um, and see her right after she was born and hold her. And then when we got moved to the mother baby unit, he had to go. So they kind of snuck him in just to the surgical suite. Um, and then, so he was never in the labor and delivery room and he was never in the um, mother baby room, the postpartum unit. Um, so there was a lot of mismatch. So I think like not only was it different than my other deliveries, but then COVID and then what kind of what I had pictured, it just kind of all wrapped together to be just an entirely different expectation a entirely different experience than any of my expectations. Right. Yeah. I, there's so much, so many layers there because you have the difference of, um, agency and choice and control with your, um, keepers. And then you have, um, taking on a role where, not only are you giving over your, you know, body to, to grow and, and help this baby become full and healthy, um, but you're giving over some of your choice as well for, for their good. And, and something that it sounds like, not that you resent in, it's a part of the process. Um, yeah. But then you have maybe these small pieces of, um, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And, and this is the moment I hoped for this yes. getting to be a part of this joy and then having that piece not be what you expected. I can see that being a, a really great grief. It, it was, there was, it, because there is that, that was the culmination, right? That was like, the moment I was waiting for it. That was, you know, why you do it. You, 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 you do a, a surrogacy because you want to grow a family, right? You want to, to help someone else 
experience what you've experienced because one of the requirements of surrogacy is that you have delivered at least one child and that you are parenting at least one child. Um, there are physical and psychological reasons behind that because physically, uh, again, they are putting a lot into this. And so knowing that your body has successfully carried a pregnancy um, is important um, to know that there's not a physical barrier as far as you go. And then that you are raising a child uh, because that helps with the psychological aspect of understanding what it means to um, you can't predict in entirety, but how you will react to carrying a child and then giving it to its parents. Um, people will often ask me, how could you give, how, I, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could give a baby away. And I'm always very quick to point out that I didn't give a baby away. Um, I returned a baby to her parents. Um, she was never mine to begin with. One of the things that um, I like to say is it's like extreme babysitting. Um, so I was just babysitting. I was just, you know, um, and I loved her in a different way than I loved my own babies. Um, from the very beginning, it was very different. Um, I, I felt a connection, but it was not, you know, I, my, because I went into it knowing, um, my mind just was in a different place. And so I never, um, when you're pregnant, you will often, you know, envision what it's going to be like, you know, uh, you'll have these pictures in your mind of, of holding your baby and feeding your baby, however you might feed your baby, you know, um, of sitting up at late at night in the quiet hours or um, all those kind of just little pictures and expectations. And I didn't have any of that. I, I never imagined what that was going to be like uh, because I knew that that wasn't going to be. Um, so I, while I had a connection with her and I loved her, I'll often say it's like if you take care of a, a niece or a nephew, even if their parents are gone on a three month long vacation, Heck, even if they go away for nine months for some reason and you have to take care of your niece and nephew, you love them. They're your niece and nephew, but you never dream that you're not going to give them back to your sister or brother when they come back, right? You're just taking care of them and you can love them without feeling ownership of them. So that was kind of how it was. But so that moment of giving her back to her parents was kind of this it was a thing in my brain. And so that didn't happen. So it was, um, and the only time I ever got to see, um, her dad with her, I was still very out of it because of the medication they had to give me. I was like semi-conscious. Um, and so I have a picture of it, but I don't super remember it. I like kind of remember it. Um, but you know, I, I didn't get to, to watch them sitting in a corner you know, yeah. seeing her and, 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 um, whispering and talking to her, just kind of all these thoughts I had in my brain, much like the thoughts that I had. I think a lot of it's like, uh, for a parent who has a baby that goes into NICU or something like that, where you've had all these dreams and thoughts and visions of what those first few days are going to be like, and then they're nothing like that. And while you're really happy that there's a healthy baby and that you're really happy that everything is um, happening that needs to happen, you still have grief for what didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, 
I think it could be even harder as a surrogate to discount that grief because of not having that ownership or, you know, try to put it in perspective of all of the great things that happened and being able to make a little bit of space for, for those things I think is also important. Yeah. It's funny because you, the, the baby was never yours to begin with. And so it feels funny to uh, almost feels like guilty to be unhappy with any part of the process because it, you know, wasn't your process, but it also is your process. And it is still a, a monumental experience in your life. just a very different monumental experience. You know, it's just, um, I, I, I told them, I told the parents, um, that, I then also had a lot of postpartum complications. I was very, very sick after she was born uh, for weeks, for weeks after she was born, actually. And um, I, I told um, the mom and dad, I said, um, I, I would still have done it, even if I knew this going in. Um, it was still worth it. Yeah. And just in case anybody's wondering, she's she's doing great now. She is, yeah, she is, and I'm well, and so is the baby, and she is almost four months old, um, which is crazy. She'll be four months old in ten days, um, and uh, they live up in the Northeast and uh, up in New England, and I get pictures every once in a while, and she has an older sister who was also born via surrogate, um, and her older sister adores her. Her older sister is six, and she um, is just over the moon in love with her baby sister. Um, she's gigantic and wears like six month plus clothing and outgrew like her bassinet by two months old. They had to move her into her crib because she didn't fit any of the newborn bassinets because she was like 14 pounds um (laughs) and no one knows by the way where this gigantic child came from because mom and dad are tiny i'm five four and mom comes up to like here on me she's got to be she's maybe five feet she's real tiny and then her husband is five six maybe again he's about the same height as my husband and Kevin's about five six mm-hmm. so they're tiny and their first baby was seven two wow. and so um I kept thinking I kept saying it's got to be me it's me it's my body because I made big babies um and the <laughs> the maternal um fetal medicine doctor the specialist kept saying that's not how it works it's <laughs> <laughs> body has nothing to do with it. It's all genetics. And I was like, well, couldn't it be like, maybe I grow like a super placenta or something that like extra gives nutrients. He's like, no, that's not. Mm-mm. He said just somewhere. He said, and who knows which baby was the, the outlier, right? Maybe uh-huh. their first baby was the outlier. And it was weird that she was small. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, who knows? Because genetics are weird, right? Kevin and I were both six pounds, like two ounces or four ounces at birth. We were the same weight, which is weird and funny, but tiny. And then all five of our babies have been pretty big. Our smallest is, was seven eleven, And I thought he was, I thought he was, something was wrong with him. He looked so tiny because all of our others are like nine pounds, 10 pounds, big babies. And so yeah. genetics are super weird. 
how that works. And none of them are big now. They're all, they're all small for their age. They all like were born big and then just kind of didn't grow for a while. (laughs) Just kind of stayed. um, Like they grew a lot until they were like one and a half and then they just kind of stalled out and then they, everybody else kind of got bigger than them. So genetics are funky and weird how they work. So, but yeah, she's great. I'm great. It took me a while. Um, I was, like I said, I was, um, I was really not better until almost seven weeks postpartum. Um, it, it, I ran a, uh, I had a mystery fever. I was running like 103, 104 degree fever for weeks and weeks that we never quite figured out. I took a lot of antibiotics and had a lot of tests run and we still didn't, it was some kind of postpartum or surgical infection, but they could just never narrow it down. Um, it was weird, but um, I, and then after that, it took me even more time to like regain my strength and my stamina. I would like get up and go cook dinner and I'd be like, whoo, done for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm finally, um, I'm almost four months postpartum and I'm really feeling for the most part normal. Um, and then I have to weigh, I don't know if some of the tiredness is just, this is how everybody feels because of quarantine and COVID where you just kind of are tired because you're not doing as much as you normally do because I was pregnant for all the first part of quarantine. And so I chalked anything up to being pregnant and then I was postpartum. So that's why. So now I'm trying to figure out like, maybe this is, this is just how everybody feels where you're just kind of exhausted all the time, even though you're not doing anything. Um, like I need a nap pretty much every single day, <laughs> yeah. Even if it's 30 minutes. I'm like exhausted in the middle of the afternoon. So I don't know if that's still weird postpartum stuff or just COVID life. Uh, it's, it's definitely hard to pin down, um, those different emotions and what's going on. And, um, I wonder, so when I first was thinking of you to talk about different birth stories. I thought of Elizabeth's story because this, this may be a little bit of a generous scriptural imagination, but I imagine Elizabeth as experiencing some extreme bed rest because she, she gets pregnant. So, one of the things I love about her story is that Zachariah finds out that his wife's going to have a baby, a baby, right? Going to, she's not currently pregnant. Right. Right. And then he says something back to God and then God takes his speech from him and somehow him not being able to talk, they're still able to like, he's able to communicate what's going to happen and make everything happen. Right. Which also makes me wonder if there's some sort of divine humor in the fact that, like, him not being able to talk helped the situation. Right? <laughs> Maybe she was like, finally, he shuts up. I'm like. <laughs> but she, you know, has been waiting for a baby for so long. And then we, we don't really hear of, like, movement like I just wonder if she felt like her life was on hold until she could really believe it Mm. maybe she had gone through miscarriages or hopes before 
And so it's not until she's like six months along that Mary comes into the picture and she seems to finally trust in like the baby moving within her. Um, and this experience of like bed rest and waiting and hoping and kind of when that moment can click for her. Yes. That, like I can, I can hope I can trust that this is really going to happen. Um, and I know you experienced some, some bed rest and there were probably those moments, especially after having two transfers, when did you feel like you could trust or hope? It was hard, you know, especially with that first one, because we were cleared. We were past the point. Uh, we had seen the reproductive endocrinologist for the last time. And so we were in Gainesville. And that's where our reproductive endocrinologist was. And we were cleared of, we knew, and we knew our move was coming up because Kevin's a Methodist pastor and we were moving that summer. So we knew all this going in. And so the timing worked out to where we were released from the reproductive endocrinologist right before the move. And so um, we saw the baby, we saw the heartbeat, we saw the heartbeat twice. So everything's good. We're released from the, the RE to make an appointment with a new OBGYN upon the move. Well, the OBGYNs wouldn't take me until I was 12 weeks. And so there was this period, which is normal. That's pretty much what they all say. So, um, and had I, had I not had an IVF pregnancy, I would not, not yet have seen a heartbeat. I wouldn't have known anything. Um, and so when I went for that first appointment, that is when we found out. Um, so we, we were, we were trusting. I had just started, I had sent like twice, I had sent a little belly bump picture because they wanted, you know, they wanted those weekly. So I think I had sent two of those. And like I, I said earlier, I had sworn I was feeling movement. And, um, and so then, then the second one, we found out so early, we never even saw a heartbeat. There was a little bit of hope because it was like, well, there is the fetal pole, so maybe it's just developing slowly. So let's wait one more week and see um, if maybe, because that can happen, they don't all follow the perfect timeline. Um, and so, but then by that second appointment, we knew um, that there, there was no development. So then when with the third, and we waited a really long time between the first and second um, because of the miscarriage and the recovery time. It took me a while. I had to have surgery. And, um, and so we waited quite a while, I think almost a year, but then between those second and third transfers, it was a much shorter time. Um, they, um, they did have to go and create some more embryos at that point. Um, and that was another part of the story is they, um, they did a, an egg retrieval and an embryo production, and they only made one good embryo. Um, which is very unusual, um, very, very unusual. And so we literally had one shot. And so that was even more like, oh my gosh. So um, no pressure. Right. So um, the first two we did know um, because of the test they can run that they were genetic malformations. That was the reason that they were miscarriages. So we knew going into this third transfer that the embryo was genetically perfect. They had done 
testing on the embryo. So it didn't have any of the um, genetic issues. Um, so the first two had something called trisomy, which is the cause of most miscarriages. And it's just a genetic, the, the embryo just isn't genetically right and doesn't form the way it should. And they would never, you know, they wouldn't be able to survive birth. They don't even survive pregnancy. It's just a, um, not a healthy embryo. So, um, so we knew that we had that kind of, that part was good. So we had a feeling that everything was going to be okay. Um, but then, so we saw the heartbeat, right? And I told, I remember telling Kevin, my husband, I was like, I should feel okay now, right? Because we've seen the heartbeat, but we saw the heartbeat before. Um, and so I was like, do you think we could come back and see the heartbeat again in a week? And they were like, I mean, sure, I guess. <laughs> but they indulged me. And then I started having some spotting. And they said it was normal, especially in an IVF pregnancy. Don't worry. And I was like, no. Um, can we have an ultrasound? <laughs> And it was right before the holiday, or it was right around the holidays, because um, actually a year ago, just a couple days ago, was the date of the transfer. So we, December 4th was the transfer. So it was like literally the week between Christmas and New Year's, and the reproductive endocrinologist's office was closed for like four or five of those days. So they sent me to another one, like, they're like, I mean, we could get you in at this one that's an hour and a half away. I was like, Sold! <laughs> I don't even care. <laughs> it's fine. It's whatever. And we went and I, I just knew, I said, I know I'm, I'm ready. I told Kevin, I'm ready. It's he insisted on coming with me. Um, and because, and I knew, I said, I know what's going to happen. We're going to see no heartbeat. I just, I know. And so when they, um, I was recording it for the parents, um, because I didn't want to be live on FaceTime when we found out. I wanted to be able to tell them on the phone and then send them the video if they wanted it. And so I was recording it. Kevin was recording it, um, but not live on FaceTime. And, um, and the doctor said, the baby's perfectly healthy. It's healthy. Um, everything's fine. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. What? I was, I was confounded. It just didn't make any sense. Um, and then the blood pressure thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a miscarriage because of this blood pressure. And so it was like, then every appointment, it was like, I'd go back and they, oh, in the first couple of OB appointments, they couldn't hear the heartbeat, which was pretty normal for me. Um, that had been the way it was with my own pregnancies with the Doppler wand, uh, just the way my placenta sits. Typically they don't hear the heartbeat real early externally. It takes until like almost a uh, couple weeks into the second trimester. But that's still, that was another, and I was like, do you think you can do an ultrasound? And the doctor was like, no, he would not indulge me. He didn't, he didn't go for it. And so then I started seeing the maternal fetal medicine doctor and that you had a 3D ultrasound at every single appointment. And so it was, you know, I was well into the second trimester and had seen many ultrasounds before I really relaxed. And then at 32 weeks, um, I um, had some early labor symptoms and I just was crushed. I was like, I just, I, I don't understand how I could have had five perfect full-term, no miscarriages, 
per, like, how, how is this possible? And so I was put on bed rest. Um, and nothing was changing. Nothing was happening. Um, everything was fine. And, uh, and I was on bed rest for, I think four weeks and I was about 36 weeks. Um, when the maternal fetal medicine doctor said, we're going to go ahead and you don't need to be on bed rest because nothing has changed. There hasn't been any dilation. There's no reason to think. And also at this point, like normally if there's a threat of early labor, they'll keep you on bed rest till 37 weeks. Um, but because at that point they didn't even think there was a threat of early labor. And then sure enough, she had to be induced. So, I mean, it was really, uh, it was a roller coaster. It was up and down of these feelings. And for the mom, especially, I would talk to her the most about it. It was really hard for her. You know, I would, I would text her or call her. I would record the heartbeat and I would say, you know, everything sounds good. Um, but I, and she'd say, I'm, I'm trying to be excited. I'm trying to be excited. Um, and they could have known from the beginning the gender because that's part of the genetic testing of the embryo, but they did not want to know. Um, they wanted to find out at the 20-week ultrasound like everybody does, right? That's like the normal landmark you find yeah. out. And they were, that, was the first, that was the first thing COVID messed up for us. Um, they were supposed to be here and they couldn't. Um, and so... We were, we were able to FaceTime for the whole thing. But I think that for her was when she was able to breathe was, even though there had been ultrasounds before that, it was that 20 week anatomy scan where they measured the brain and the, you could count the fingers and you could see the toes and you could see her nose and you could see her lips. She had these cheeks that just like came out like this. And she would smush against, against you know, the outside. She would smush like this so her little face would be all crunched up and her cheeks would be like these perfectly round little circles on the ultrasound. Um, but it was, it was like from there on out, I could see and hear in her texts and her calls that she was excited, that she was ready. So you have to think, you know, thousands of years ago, right? There wasn't an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a way to know for sure how far along you were. And you have to think even with, with Elizabeth, you know, she may have been in menopause. Yeah. So she may really have had no way of knowing for sure until, you know, and, and maybe her belly started to grow and she, she thought, Oh, I'm old. You know, I've been, eating a bit too much pita, you know, I don't know, <laughs> been indulging on the olives a bit. And so she just, you know, wrote that off. And so I think, you know, that movement. And then, and then, like I said, I thought I felt movement when there wasn't movement. Mm -hmm. So until it was like that I, with, with the, the baby, um, I don't share her name and the parents' names. Right, right. That's, that's, uh, something that they, that's their wishes. And so I don't yeah. ever share their personal information or her name, the baby's name. So um, it wasn't until I could like see her moving that I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that's baby movement. <laughs> like right. I can't deny that. That was a foot or an elbow, like for sure. And she was big, right? So like 
when I was like 20 weeks along, she was already like four and a half or five pounds at that 20 week ultrasound um, and moving all over the place. So it was, uh, and I could, I was able to like take videos of my belly where you could see her moving from the outside and send that to her parents. And cause they would say, Oh, do you feel her moving? And I was like, I think so. But, <laughs> but I said that before and I don't want to mess up and say it, you know, it'd be wrong. So, well, and once you um, get to the stage, so much hope and then to, um, disappointment and then hope again, and then yeah. disappointment and fear and um, just, yeah. And, and it was over the course of like three years, um, three years of this journey with them. Where do you feel? You're muted. I can't hear you. Oh. Um, can you hear me now? Oh, no. Oh, I got you. I got you oh, back. Okay. Um, where did you feel like God's presence in just waiting? You know, that's a hard one. Um, I asked a lot more of like, why gods? <laughs> um, you know, especially at that 32 weeks when I got put on bed rest, that was the one that was like, why, why is, why this one? Like, why now? It's, I've, I've my body has never had a problem carrying a baby to term. What, what is happening? What is um, my daughter, my second, she, people look at me like I have 12 heads when I say this, but she went 17 days past her due date. Um, most people by that point would be induced, but I didn't want to be. Um, and she was healthy and I was healthy. So we just kept on keeping on. Um, but, but I, I just, you know, why is this, why is this happening now? And, um, as is, most often the case, I didn't get an answer to that. <laughs> there was no, you know, answer to that, to the why of that. Um, but I, I, I did, you know, there were definite moments of just kind of frustration and, and anger over why is, why is, Everybody, when I said I was going to be a surrogate, they're, oh, you're going to be the perfect surrogate. I mean, you've done this so many times. Your body's so good at it. And I, that's how I felt. That's what I thought. And so, you know, maybe the why is to show me that I'm not, I'm not in control of everything and that, that um, you know, things aren't, aren't always going to go the way I expect them to. Um, you know, I don't know, but uh, and and also, as I always tell people who ask why do bad things happen, I always tell them there's not really a reason. They just it's just the way things are. Um, but he, there were precious moments that came out of that time um, that um, just within my own family, I was on bed rest at home. So um, just lots of precious one on one time with my own children where they would crawl. Um, into the bed next to me, even my oldest two, who I hope they don't ever listen to this, they'd probably be embarrassed, but who haven't crawled into bed next to me and who knows how long would come and um, want to spend time with me. And so that was where they had to spend time with me. So my oldest, my son would come in with his laptop 
and he'd show me, we'd watch YouTube videos together. He'd, he'd show me fun, the funny things he had found on YouTube. Um, and we'd just sit in the evenings and watch things. And, um, lots of board games with my littlest, he would come drag a board game into the bed and he would have a whole thing figured out where he could like put something down on the bed to make it more stable so that we could play, play board games together. And, um, and, and them learning to also not have to rely on me so much. I've been a very hands-on mom their whole lives. And so, um, them taking care of me a little bit, I think in some ways was good because they learned, uh, and it forced me. Um, so anyone who's listening, who's an Enneagram person, um, I'm a very strong Enneagram two with a three wing. And so that means that I, uh, derive my worth from serving and from taking care of people. And when people take care of me, I feel like a burden and I feel like I am, uh, I am not a person of worth when I'm not giving to others. So um, there was lessons for me that I struggled to learn, but um, that I don't have to do everything and that um, allowing other people to take care of me um, might be a gift to them. And so, uh, you know, when people would offer food, um, learning to just say yes, not to say, oh, no, you don't have to do that. You know, we're fine. But to just allow them the opportunity to give and to grow and um, allowing my children to learn to step up a little more and to be more um, more active and to do more things on their own around the house because I wasn't right there behind them um, to do it for them. And so, um, you know, that that for me was was one big lesson is, is learning that, um, I don't have to do everything for everyone. I mean, the fact that I was a surrogate in the first place, people laugh when I say I was, I'm a two on the Enneagram because they're like, I mean, you literally carried baby for another human. So that's pretty on brand right there for a two. Um, (laughs) so, um, you know, if you, people who are familiar with Enneagram, one of the things you do have to learn And one of the things that it's been empowering for me through learning about it is that it is who you are, but it, each, each part, each number on the Enneagram has their weaknesses and their strengths. And so learning that I have worth because I have worth, not because I cook dinner and feed everybody that I, I deserve love just because I deserve love, not because I did the laundry, folded it and put it away all in the same day. That doesn't ever happen, but we'll pretend it does or whatever. Just, you know, that that's not where my worth comes from, that my worth comes because I'm, because I just am a person of worth and that I don't have to prove it. Um, Yeah. What I hear. And I think what is true is that waiting is one of the few things we do with where you can't do anything. You just have to be. Yeah. And there's something sacred and holy and transformative in learning how to be instead of do. do. Yeah. Cause that, I, that's, I mean, it was four weeks and that's, uh, and I know there are plenty of women who are on bed rest much longer than that, but um, you, you can't do anything. You can't hurry the time along. You can't, 
um, you can't make it stop. You just, you just have to sit through it. Yeah. Well, Annette, I'm sure we could talk forever just because I love these kinds of conversations. And you've got five other birth stories we haven't even gotten to hear. But I am um, really appreciative of you taking some time and sharing, um, you know, part of your story. And I hope other people are able to hear um, and be blessed by it. I hope so too. And I would just say if there is anyone out there who's ever thought about being a surrogate, while it was the heart, I would say one of the top three hardest things I've ever done in my life. It's also one of the most incredible. And, um, I would, I would encourage anyone who thinks it's something they might want to do one day to, to look into it and research it because it really is, um, it really is an incredible experience to be a part of. Thank you, Annette. And I hope that you and your family have a wonderful week and a wonderful Advent. Thank you, you too.